you have a Bible, be it on phone, iPad, or memorized in your heart, we are now turning to the second chapter of Romans, and today we'll look at verses 12 through 16. One thing to remember about the Apostle Paul is that some of his writings are difficult. They're so dense, and there's so much being said with an economy of words that it's easy to misunderstand this text, and this probably would rank as one of the most misunderstood passages in all of the Bible. And so today, one of my goals is to help clear that up and uh, get us straightened out in terms of how we see this particular text. Um, so we're going to read these four verses, and the balance of our time will be spent on looking at three particular truths that I want to press home to you uh, this morning. Hear now the word of the Lord. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they did not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Let's look to the Lord together as we pray. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for providing us the book of Romans in the Bible and how it is so filled with truth that is um, necessary for us to understand how to relate to you in every way. And so we pray this morning that the Holy Spirit who inspired these words will enable the one who preaches as well as the one who hears the word of the Lord and that understanding would be gained and that a heart would be ready and willing to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know... People don't like to be held accountable, do they? Have you ever been in a position where you've had to hold someone accountable? I've never had a person come up and say, thank you so much for bringing up my responsibility in this situation. We recently, last year I think it was, we flew from here to see our grandchildren in Alabama, Mobile, Alabama. And of course on the way there was a, a particular uh, severe weather in our path and we got stuck in Houston and they just basically said the flight will be at 8.30 tomorrow morning so we spent the night in the airport. Okay. You know, sometimes you got to do that. You got to roll with it. We did. And so the next morning we got on the flight. We land in Mobile. Only my bag made it. All right. That night 
we were supposed to go to a football banquet, and my wife had on at that moment overalls and a really comfortable shirt. So they told us the next day, get up tomorrow morning, call us, we'll have it for you. Well, I wasn't real satisfied with that. So I let them know, look, I can't control the weather. You can't control the weather. But you have my bags. I paid you to put my bag in a plane and transport it to Mobile, Alabama. And you can make all the excuses you want, but the fact remains. And I was smiling the whole time. It was really nice. You would have been proud. <laughs> and I said, we need that bag. Four days later. We got that bag. And so we tried to hold them accountable again. And I understand if I was the woman working in that situation, I probably would have reacted the same way. But it was still true that people make excuse after excuse after excuse. It's going to be on this flight. Well, apparently they missed it on that flight. And it makes traveling adventurous, to say the least. So Paul here is picking up on the concept that human beings know things go wrong. They know that laws are broken, but they excel at shifting the blame and excusing themselves. Does a teacher chide a child for laughing in class? But he made a face. Does someone miss an appointment? I lost my keys. The thought is, I did nothing wrong. You cannot condemn me for doing that. Paul knew that people try as much as they can to evade responsibility, especially for their sin. And so he devotes most of Romans chapter 2 and chapter 3 to do the task of refuting the excuses people give before the face of God. Romans 2, 1 through 16 develops several themes. People with a moral compass think they are free to condemn others, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The status of Jews as God's people will not excuse him from his judgment, chapter 2, verse 3 and verse 5. For the knowledge of the law is not sufficient, chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. In fact, those who know the law have absolutely no excuse. And so, when they agree with God's judgments... They condemn themselves since they commit the very sins they denounce. Romans 12, uh, 2, 12 through 16 argues that God's judgment is just because he judges people by the light they enjoyed while living. Jews have the written law, but even those who do not have the written law have a conscience. And thus the law is written on their hearts. Romans 2, 12 through 16 declares that God shows no favoritism. So his impartial judgment falls on those who are unrepentant. He judges all whether they have the law or not. He judges Jews even though they have the Torah or the law of Moses because one is not justified by knowing the law. God also judges Gentiles even though they don't have the Mosaic law because they have a conscience so they are a law to themselves. God wrote the law on the heart of everyone and granted everyone a conscience that accuses or acquits. Thus, God can judge the secrets of men. The most important thing you need to remember as we approach Romans here is the concept of context. 
We always hear people say, they took my words out of context. Sometimes that's just not true, but sometimes it is true. For example, let's say that I make the statement, she is really hot. Now, I know what some of you are thinking already. Pastor, how could you even think about saying that? You're a married man. Well, you're assuming the context is what? Me looking at an attractive, lovely woman walking by. But what if I'm uh, looking at someone, a woman in her backyard who's working very hard in her garden and she's perspiring and she looks dehydrated, then I would say she's really hot. Or let's say that someone is sleeping in their bed and they wake up soaking wet, throwing all the covers off, and I would say she's really hot. So which context is it? I mean, what is the meaning of the word hot? Well, it depends on the context, right? Let's say a man's at a baseball game, a woman walks by who's obviously attractive, and he says to his wife, boy, she's really hot. And she said, I can't believe you just said that about that woman that walked by. Oh, no, I wasn't talking about her. I was talking about the woman fanning herself down on uh, first base who was, you know, they ran uh, emergency workers in to help her. That's a man who can think on his feet. But <laughs> Paul is talking here about works. The whole passage is based on works. And he mentions the phrase, justified by works. Now, we talked about this a little last week, but I want to clarify exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about our responsibility before God. Every person is responsible before God not only to hear the works of the law or what the law says we are to do, but to do it as well. Now, as we understand, and Paul will clear, make clear in chapter 3, verse 20, and on in the book of Romans, you've got to compare Scripture with Scripture to understand what Scripture means. Paul here is sounding like James in the book of James. And what Paul is saying is, if you have a faith that looks outside of yourself and uh, lays hold of velcros yourself to the person of Christ to save you from your sins by virtue of the fact that he's lived the life you are required to live and you are, you are impossibly stranded because you can't live that way. And he took the judgment you deserve for not living that way and paid the penalty in full. That kind of faith works. Calvin says we're justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies us, the kind of faith we have, is a faith that what? Works. And so when Paul talks about judgment and he talks about works at the end of time, this passage is in the context of judgment, not salvation. And so let's disabuse anybody of the notion that we're ever justified by our works. If we were justified, if we could potentially even think about justifying ourselves by God, before God, by our own works, then Jesus would never have had to come, would he? If I can save myself, what do I need him for? I don't. But the fact is I can't save myself, therefore Jesus must come. And so I sort of wanted to lay the groundwork. I hope I haven't confused anybody. It'll make more sense as we go along. 
Romans chapter 2 verse 11 states that God shows no partiality. Paul continues, for all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And so here Paul introduces an inference. Since God is impartial in his judgment and will be fair both to Jews who have the law and Gentiles who do not have the law, um, he will be fair in his judgment both to Jews and Gentiles. Now get this straight. There's something called light. Light is truth or revelation. And God gives every person light. Someone who comes to church and reads their Bibles and studies their Bibles and hears the word of God preached have received a lot of light. And you are responsible for what you hear. And people who have never heard of Jesus Christ, do not have a Bible, do not have a faithful church they can attend, will be judged according to the light that they have. And we'll talk about what light they already have in just a moment. But Paul is establishing here that God is impartial. That one group is not favored over the other. The Jews believed they were uh, the elite elect favored over others because they were in the covenant. They had the Torah, uh, the law of Moses. They had privileges of God's presence in their midst. But Paul is going to basically get to the core of God's judgment and prove beyond any reasonable doubt that God is impartial. Let me illustrate it this way. When I was a young pastor in my first church, there were two men in that community who were notorious for having made the statement, I will never go to that church, the one I was pastoring over there. And both lived within like they could walk if they wanted to. And so I heard about it and I said, well, I'm young and full of spit and vigor. And so I'm going to go see them. One of them had said, if anybody from that church or any pastor from that church ever comes to see me, I will shoot him when he puts his feet on the property. Well, not to say that I'm that courageous or stupid either, but I knew the man. He knew my father. He knew my mother. He didn't like my dad. He did like my mother. And I knew his grandson. I played sports with his grandson growing up. So to be fair, I knew who he was. His name was John Roberts. That was his name. And John was a blowhard. He always uh, was, was telling somebody off or whatever. So I go and I knock on his door. And of course, what I hear from the other side is, who is it? And I said, it's Pastor Tim Posey from the church right over here. I'd like to talk to you, John. He said, I don't want to talk to you. I said, you know me. You know who I am. I said, just, I want to talk to you for a second. So I go in. He, he's obviously not happy about it. He starts running down everybody in the church, which they typically do, and maybe for good reason. <laughs> but he was running down everybody in the church, and finally I said, John, I'm here because I want to tell you about Jesus. I want to talk to you about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Oh, I know all that, he said. And I said, well, obviously it hasn't penetrated your life yet because I've never seen you at church and I've been here two years every Sunday, never seen you darken the door. I'm not going to that church. I hate those people, he said. I said, John, I could see that he was set. 
I said, John, if I was you, and that was my attitude, and I was never going to go back to that church, and I was saying that I'm never going to repent of my sins, and I'm never going to become a genuine, real, born-again Christian, then I, I got advice for you. Don't ever come back to the church. And he looked at me. He says, what, what do you mean? I said, the more you expose yourself to the truth of God, the greater your punishment will be in hell because that's where you're going. Now, needless to say, John quickly escorted me out. <laughs> and I never saw John again. Now, you've got to remember, I'm in my 20s. But the story's not over. What happened? I went to the next man who had the reputation for being even worse than John. His name was Bodie McLean. Sounds like a Tennessee guy, right? So I go knock on his door and I said, Mr. Bodie, it's Pastor Tim Posey. Later on, I found out this man is related to me, but I didn't know it at the time. And I said, I would like to talk to you. I said, I'm the new pastor here at the church. I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. You got a minute? He said, nope. He said, uh, I don't talk to people about that. He said, you're just wasting your time. Go on home. Well, this all happened in December. And so Christmas Eve, we had worship service. And I'm preaching. My sermon title was Mary Had a Little Lamb, which is trite, to say the least. <laughs> I was 25, okay? <laughs> and so I'm preaching this sermon. And all of a sudden, I see the back doors come open. And in walks a man who I've never seen before in my life, but I could hear the whispers. That's Bodie McLean. Now, you have to understand that both of these men <coughs> had threatened to kill me. And so I preach the message, and when it's over in a Baptist church, you always give an invitation, and all of a sudden, Bodie gets up and he starts walking to me. Now, I have to tell you, I'm looking as all over him to see, has he got a gun? Is he going to come up here and just shoot me dead? And he walked up. And he wept, and he put his arms around me, and he said, you're the first person who's ever knocked on my door to ask me to, to, to talk to him about Jesus. And he said, I want you to know I want to be saved today. I want to be saved. Man didn't know much about the Bible, and he certainly wasn't a man who lived an upright life. But apparently, that's how the gospel does. It goes out, and some people reject it and are hostile to it, even though they've seen the light or uh, the light has sh shone upon them. Maybe they haven't seen it. But Bodie received Christ that day and attended every Sunday while I was there. I don't know what happened afterwards. My dad uh, told me afterwards that he was related to me. I said, well, I can believe it because of uh, the way he behaved. Now, Paul is doing exactly the same kind of thing when he talks about the Gentiles and the Jews here. Scripture testifies that God judges everyone on the basis of the person's words, deeds, and thoughts. God repays each person for what he or she does, whether good or evil. Since all who sin are judged, Jews cannot be exempt because they know the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Once a person savingly believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, that faith that they placed in Christ produces 
good works that are foreordained that they should walk in them. And that is precisely what happened. Believers have stumbled over doers of the law will be justified since it appears to contradict the gospel. I hope I have removed that contradiction. Paul here sounds more like James. As a matter of fact, in Romans 3.20, he tells us, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in terms of salvation. But in terms of judgment, you will be judged by your works. You will be judged by what you have done since you have believed in Jesus if you're a Christian. A believer does the law because words and deeds proceed from a good heart just as wicked deeds proceed from an evil heart. Doers of the law are justified because God declares them righteous or justifies when he sees the works that demonstrate their living faith. In this case, it is one thing to be doers of the law and another to try to gain merit through law-keeping. One rabbi said, God will allow Israel to earn merits, and therefore he gives them much Torah and commandments. In order to give Israel merits, it pleased Yahweh to make the Torah big and strong. Similarly, the great rabbi Hillel stated that where there is so much law, there is much life. For these rabbis, the law provide opportunities to accrue merit before God. For Paul, by contrast, Law brings an awareness of sin to unbelievers and grants believers opportunities to express their justification by actions born of love and God for God and neighbor. So law-keeping doesn't merit you any kind of status before God. But those who have been converted, those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, those who are new creatures in Christ Jesus, have a whole new set of attitudes and appetites to where they desire with all of their being to be obedient to the Lord. That's the kind of faith that justifies. That's the kind of faith that works, that will be rewarded forever. Now, I've told you this, and I'm just going to mention this quickly. Everybody who's a believer in Jesus Christ, who's been justified by faith alone, will go to heaven. But some people will be rewarded at a different level than others because of the works that prove the reality of their faith in justification. So does it matter how you live after Christ receives you? You better believe it. It matters forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. <laughs> so Paul commends the doers of the law. He echoes James who urged, be doers of the word, not hearers only. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law and perseveres will be blessed in his doing. For both James and Paul, Scripture is a mirror for the soul. Now, let's talk about the Gentiles for a moment. We've talked about those who have the law. And the prob uh, person who was most helpful to me in this particular part of the passage of course, was R.C. Sproul, who was my systematics professor at seminary. Um, and he was very helpful here. 
He talks here about the revelation that takes place. For example, look with me again in Romans 2 and look at verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So there is, for the unbelieving person, a revelation of God's law given. We can put Romans 1 and Romans 2 together. In chapter 1, Paul develops the concept of a mediate general revelation, which is a revelation of God that he gives of himself through the medium of creation itself. God communicates his eternal power and his deity through the medium of the created order. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. So all you got to do is look into the heavens and you see the glory of God. In other words, creation itself reveals back to you the glory, the substantial heaviness and weightiness of the being who spoke it into existence. People know there's a God. They see it clearly. But Paul expands that truth even further because Paul said the scriptures also testify uh, let me find that part. Here it is. The things of God are clearly perceived through the things that are made. The medium of nature reveals God to all people. In addition to immediate general revelation, we also speak of immediate general revelation. We're not talking about scriptures here. We're talking about God's revelation that is general for all. Here the term immediate is used with respect to time. Rather, immediate general revelation is that which God gives without some intervening medium. Simply, immediate general revelation is the knowledge of God that he plants in our souls. I know it makes people a little bit upset when I say there aren't really any atheists. There are suppressors and liars. Look, everybody, every single human being on the planet knows there's a God. Why? Because part of the image of God in man, God made us to be his image and to image him in the world. And part of the Imago Dei, the image of God in man, is the census diviniatus that John Calvin spoke of when writing on, upon this particular passage. Every single human being knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a God. They just don't want there to be a God. Some of them. But Scripture says they have this sense of deity. But notice also they have something written on their hearts. 
Something in addition is written on their hearts. That is, the law of God is written on their hearts. That sounds like, and some of the commentators I've studied, argue that the Gentiles he's talking about here are Christians who've experienced the reality of Jeremiah 33 in the New Covenant where they have received a new heart, they've received the Holy Spirit, and he has written the law on their hearts. No, it's not talking about that because he's not at that context yet. It's talking about by virtue of creation, everybody has the law of God written, etched, as it were, upon their being. Now that's really good news in some respects, and it's really bad news in other respects. And so the writer here makes an amazing comment Simply, immediate general revelation is the knowledge of God that he plants in our souls before we ever took a breath God planted in our soul an immediate knowledge and awareness of himself and this revelation is given apart from the teaching of the Bible or even looking at nature. Therefore, we know God both mediately through nature and immediately through the sense of deity that he planted in our souls. God has revealed himself to the human heart such that everyone knows what is right and what is not right. We can practice our sins over and over again and get everybody in our community to think and agree it's okay to do these things, but we know better. We know better. We know better. We know better. Now, granted, because of the fall into sin, the image of God was marred and scarred, but not removed. For example, if you look at the quote in the front of the bulletin by C.S. Lewis, who I agree with some things, but not everything he said, and he'd say the same about me, but here. Everyone has heard people say things like this. How'd you like it if anyone did the same thing to you? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. The man who says this is appealing to some standard of behavior which he expects others to know about. You know what it's called? The golden rule. And the golden rule is not he who has the gold rules. The golden rule, Jesus said, is to do unto others as you would have them what? Do unto you. Everybody knows that. Everybody. They may claim they don't know it, but in practice, in everyday life, in transactional relationships, they certainly know that. And so the case is being made here that the Gentiles are not exempt from judgment because nobody ever taught them the law of Moses or nobody ever told them the Ten Commandments. Most scholars believe that at least commandment 6 through 10 is inscribed in everybody's heart, but because we have violated our relationship with God, commandments 1 through 4 are not as clear. I kind of agree with that. But we know the law. We know it. We know what God requires. So, what do we do here? We all know. We know what? Um... When did an adulterer not know that he was violating his wife or she, her husband? When did a murderer not realize that the wanton destruction of another human being was a sin against humanity and God? We all know. 
Why is murder against another human being? It is an assault on God. Why? Because you're killing God's image. Which is why we have what is called the sanctity of life. And as you see this understanding of the sanctity of life being lost in our culture, it's dangerous to be in the womb and it's dangerous to be headed for the tomb because they're going to kill you. Because there's no fear of God in their eyes. But they know. They know. And I know. And you know. No matter what posture we may take. We all know it's evil to cheat, to slander, to lie. Because God has given us a conscience. The conscience can be seared. Timothy tells that in, in, in his letter. He said we can get to the point where we have seared our conscience. As the Old Testament prophet says, we have the forehead of a harlot. It's as if the pangs and pain and guilt and shame of conscience never touch us anymore. We just become hard. You ever met a hard person? Ever been around a hard person? Ever been a hard person? Are you presently a hard person? Only Jesus can soften that heart. The Israelites had lost their ability to blush. And that's what happens to us when we are delivered over to our sins. But even in that terrible, corrupt state, we do not vanquish totally uh, the light of God's revelation that is within our consciences. We show the work of the law written in our hearts because our consciences bear witness against us. And we know, even from Shakespeare's writings and others, that people are tortured, as it were, by their conscience. Sometimes the reason why people practice substance abuse, the reason why they take drugs is so they can for a minute deceive themselves into thinking they have no conscience and they can get away from the accusation, but the accusations never stop. They never stop. Now remember here, what Paul is doing in these chapters is not giving you uh, truth to make you jump up and down with glee. He's painting a portrait of exactly why Jesus Christ needs to come and why you and I need to be rescued and why you and I need to be saved. Because we're not okay. We're not safe. We can't fix ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. No matter how hard we may purpose or try, we can't. And so Paul is backing us into a corner with a great sense of hopelessness and despair. Is there anybody that can help us? Well, if you've been around, you know the story. Now, there was so much more I wanted to say, but uh, it's Father's Day and I'm getting hungry and uh, no. Our thoughts will either accuse us or excuse us in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to the gospel because essential to the gospel is the announcement that Jesus Christ has been appointed the perfect judge of the earth. God knows your secrets. He knows all of our secrets. And we all have them. 
You know, it's terrible to be judged by a person who knows you better than you know yourself, who knows you exhaustively, who will hold you accountable before himself, who was there when you did it, saw you do it. I worked at a juvenile detention center in Dallas, Texas for five years. Great training to be a pastor. But anyway, in this juvenile detention system, I had to go to court one day. One of my kids in my group had a court appearance, and I took him, and he had been accused of shoplifting. He had 17 priors on his record of shoplifting. So I go with him to court, and I expect him, well, maybe this time he'll own up to it and be a man. He walks up and he sits down and they bring person after person. He had stolen a jam box from Sears. People identified him being in this car in the parking lot. People were there who saw him go into the door. The worker who worked in the section where the jam box was saw him pick it up, saw him go to the bathroom, then didn't see. People saw him leaving the store with something wrapped up in his jacket. Somebody saw him not only leave the building, but get in his car, take the jam box out, set it in the car, and all these people took off work to come and testify. And the judge says, well, what do you, what do you have to say in the face of all this evidence? I swear to God I didn't do it. That's what he said. I swear to God. I hope that boy, my heart's desire is that boy got Jesus got all over him somehow. God knows. He knows the secrets of our heart. He knows what lusts need to be mortified. He knows which idols we cherish. He knows who we really are and what we really think. And he will judge us on the day of judgment. The Father has delegated that role to his Son. Jesus himself warned his own generation that what they did in secret will be made manifest. All skeletons will be coming out of the closets and they will be revealed. That is why we need to be covered. And that is why I say salvation through Jesus Christ and him alone is the greatest divine cover-up in history. You know, a lot of people say the cover-up is worse than the crime. Not in this case. What has God done? We stand before the judgment bar of God like Adam and Eve stood in the garden, naked, afraid, and ashamed. Well, what did Jesus do? Why is it that we can have hope for eternal life? Redemption is all about a divine cover-up. The last thing we would want to do is appear before God like Adam and Eve. It is absolutely essential that we gain the cloak of righteousness of Christ so that when every secret sin is made manifest in the judgment, we will be covered by the perfection of Christ's righteousness. Bah, golly, that ought to excite you. Because think about it if you didn't have it. You'd be naked and afraid before him with whom we have to do. And because of faith in Christ and in Christ alone, he covers our nakedness with his beautiful robe of righteousness. Very well pictured for us in the prodigal son's return home as the father gives him the robe and the ring and the sandals and he falls upon his neck with kisses. 
And once we look outside of ourselves and lay hold of Jesus, all of that which makes us naked, ashamed, and afraid, Jesus took upon himself and took the wrath of God for us and covered up our nakedness with his beautiful righteousness so that when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, not my nakedness. Hallelujah. It'd almost make a Presbyterian say amen, wouldn't it? <laughs> the frozen chosen are about to move. So, it's absolutely essential that you and I gain the cloak of righteousness of Christ so that when every secret is made manifest in the judgment, we will be covered by the perfection of Christ's righteousness. Our righteousness will not do it. I want to hot cry when I hear people say, I don't need Christ. My life is fine. I'm happy. I'm successful. My conscience doesn't bother me at all. What do I need with Jesus? There's nothing we need more desperately than someone who will cover us when every secret is made manifest, every thought, every word, every deed exposed. We're not yet to the good news. I'm trying to give you a little bit here, a whole lot, because Romans just basically strips us of everything we think we have to recommend ourselves to God's goodness to us and his mercy. We have nothing. We're naked. We have nothing. And so run to Jesus. Jesus said this, Come unto me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what your soul longs for more than anything in the universe is rest. Have you come to Jesus and received that rest? Do you continually go back to Jesus and receive that rest? Because that's what's wrong. Jesus should be everything to us, everything to me, everything to you. And there should be no limit since he's gone to that length to save me. There's no limit on what I tell him he can have. I've been bought with a price. I belong to him. My life is his. Now you bow your heads and close your eyes, please. We thank you for the gospel because that's how you're going to judge us according to to Jesus' gospel. On the day we stand before you, we will be judged either by our works or his works. And we thank you that Jesus' works for salvation issues in us as we receive it and believe it in good works for his glory. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as people who have experienced the divine cover-up, who are safe in the arms of Jesus, wrapped in his beautiful robe of absolute total righteousness. And our sins will be remembered against us no more. Father, may we give as people who believe that in Jesus' name. Amen.